I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity, Celebrity Memoir Book, Book Club. We lost it. I was on my own thing. You were doing NPR <laughs> and I was doing after school special. No, what I was doing, I was doing hand karate. I was going, this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. <laughs> I'm trying really hard to like zhuzh myself up. And so I'm pretending I'm one of those little robots that fights. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, Rock'em Sock'em. No, it's like a 1950s game that only old people know about. Okay. Well, what is Celebrity Memoir Book Club, you ask? It's not 2020. It's not a 1950s boxing game. It is a podcast where we read celebrity memoirs so that if you don't want to, you never have to. If you think reading is for squares, we box this up in a cube and we say, here's your content, sailor. And if you don't like that, <laughs> you have permission from me, Claire, and your heart to turn this off. But if you do want it, well, we welcome you aboard. And if you want to write a five-star review at the end, Ashley thanks all our five-star reviewers personally. I do. You know what would make people mad, I think? What? What if one week I read the thank yous? I feel like people would feel like they really got screwed out of what they were promised. No, I think they'd have a nice time. I think they'd have the most special five-star review read of all. A rare one. And if you want to come see us in real life, because you say this podcast is a damn good time, and I bet we would have a nice time if we were all in the same room, we are coming to so many cities. Starting in July, we added another show in Toronto. In September, we added another show in Chicago. We'll also be in Minneapolis, St. Paul. We will be coming to Nashville, Atlanta, San Francisco, Denver, Washington, D.C., and Philadelphia. And I am really excited. And so I hope you guys come. Me too. Please come. And before we get into this week's episode, Claire, if you were to write a memoir about your life, what would you title last week's chapter? Next week. <laughs> okay. You know how last episode I said this is not the summer of our lives, next summer is the summer of our lives? Oh yeah, this summer has taken a turn for the flaming pile of shit. <laughs> it's just smog all the way down. I feel the same way. You know what I realized is the big problem between me and success? What? I've got no paper and pens in my house. That's like a realization I had yesterday when I was trying to get things done. I felt like I was expending so much energy keeping things up in the old noggin to keep things in the noggin and then resolve things in the noggin. It's literally impossible. It's like doing division in your head. And I finally said, Claire, I know why you're such a dumb butt loser. <laughs> it's because you got no paper, no pens. And I'm going to fix that this weekend, I think. And I think once I get a piece of paper and a pen in front of me and I can make a list, the sky's the limit. You know what's secretly really close to my house? Staples, you already told me, and I feel like you keep trying to trick me into hanging out with you, but I literally have been to your house three times in the last two days. I know, but I think it'd be fun if we went to Staples. If I come with you to your local Staples, your home base, your small town Staples, <laughs> could we put everything I buy on the business card? Maybe. And then if we use the Staples tools, like the pen and pencils that we bought to write down the ideas that we come up with. Jim, Mr. Hamilton, is this a tax write-off? Let us know. Write in. Okay, I've got a great plan for the week now. What days are you free? When can we go to Staples? I guess like tomorrow. I'll meet you there. Okay. And <laughs> bring Bug. I have brought her to Staples. She doesn't like it because she likes to actually keep all of her ideas in the noggin. Anyway, Ashley, if you were a celebrity and last week was a memoir, what would the chapter be called? I would call it, you listened to your heart and you had a nice time. Ugh, I already know where this is going because I think I was a part of it, right? This is the last time I'll talk about my birthday for 11 months. But last week was my birthday and every year I feel a lot of pressure to like do a thing. And I just decided no. And the day before I always get anxious. I say, what if I have no friends? I have to throw a birthday thing to prove that I have friends. 
And I said, no, you know, you have friends, you talk to people all the time, you hang out with people all the time, just order a pizza at your house and invite two people over and eat a pizza and you'll be happy. And I was. And who else brought what else? Bug brought her. Bug didn't bring anything. Zany personality. (laughs) Second of all, there was s'mores from Claire. Interesting. Interesting. Great evening. Anyway, should we get into this week's episode? Yes. Should we Matthew McConaughey style turn the page, boy? Yesterday I called Ashley. I said, I have to be honest, I have a lot of pages left. And Ashley goes, I have a lot of pages left. <laughs> Today we are doing Elliot Page's brand new memoir, Page Boy. It came out last week and I'm excited to get into it. Me too. So I do want to disclaim that this book is written quite unchronologically. So we're going to do our best to clarify the timeline that everything is happening at the beginning of each chapter. But boy, does it leap and skip and jump. So just keep that in mind as you listen to the story. Of course, it starts off with an author's note. Every author needs to write a note. And this one is primarily just giving respect to the LGBTQ plus community and a little reminder that this is his story and is not necessarily representative of every story. And unfortunately, I do think this is an important thing to clarify because in the age of the internet, I think people have a lot of problems reading a story that is not their story. I have nothing new or profound to say, nothing that hasn't been said before, but I know books have helped me, saved me even. So perhaps this can help someone else feel less alone, seen, no matter who they are, what journey they're on. Thank you for wanting to read about mine. So it starts with Paula. That's chapter one. I met Paula when I was 20, sitting on our friend's couch, eating raw almonds with her knees to her chest. She introduced herself. I'm Paula. This chapter was a real plunge in the pool of Elliot Page's writing style, which is extremely lyrical, quite poetic. Yes. A bit difficult to process. But overall, in the end of the day, I think we get the story well. Yeah, I definitely read the first chapter or two of this book and was like, okay, important story. I don't know that it's like the best story ever. And I do believe he wrote this himself. I think this reads like the book of somebody who's read a lot of great books. It got better for me after, but it did start off a bit two paragraph long sentences with a lot of commas. You actually started reading before me, which usually I read about 10 pages and then call you to tell you about the whole book. <laughs> yeah, Ashley would be like, well, let me tell you what this is about. But anyway, so this time you started before me and you were like, I'm having a hard time with the weighty writing. And I think for me, the hardest thing about the writing style in here is the way he would do something very poetic for two paragraphs before introducing what he was talking about. It got really confusing because that wasn't even just necessarily how he would start a chapter. There was a lot of like one story and then it would branch off into another story, but it would take me two paragraphs to realize that the story had evolved into a different person. Yeah, it's a lot of like, here's seven moments throughout the entirety of my life that are all bound together by a single theme of this word. Like we'd be talking about Paula and that relationship ending. And then like we were sitting in a bar, her hair swayed. This was Ryan. And I'm like, when did we start talking about Ryan? Yeah, it definitely took me a few chapters to get into. And I think it took him a few chapters to get into. But I think by the end, it was much more readable. But so it starts out, he's in love with the sound of her voice. It radiated warmth, the kindness. It wasn't so much that her eyes lit up, but that they found you. I could feel her looking. And this is the story of the moment that he first went to a gay bar and kissed a woman openly and is beginning to be more out with himself and in his immediate personal life and date and be comfortable in public for this to only get slapped down by here I was on the precipice, getting closer to my desires, my dreams, me without the unbearable weight of the self-disgust that I'd carried for so long. But a lot can change in a few months. And in a few months, Juno would premiere. 
So then we get into the premiere of Juno and the very public conversation about Elliot Page's sexuality. So there was a headline basically calling out Elliot Page's sexuality sweepstakes. I read the headline color draining from my face. It was an article written by Michael Musto in the Village Voice during peak Juno success. I scanned the rest of the piece. Among his speculation about a 20-year-old sexuality, Michael included, I mean, come on already. Is he, you know, Lebanese? And I remember this. I remember there being a lot of conversation around like whether or not he dated women. So then this paragraph kind of begins the stories and the different moments throughout his life that people have always been questioning his sexuality. He was often called like the derogatory term for a lesbian. He remembers playing soccer in middle and high school and kind of confiding in another person on the team. Like, I think I might be bi. And the girl is like, no, you're not. And then the next day, people start calling him names. The success of Juno coincided with people in the industry telling me that no one could know I was queer, that it wouldn't be good for me, that I should have options to trust that this was for the best. So I put on the dresses and the makeup. I did the photo shoots. I kept Paula hidden. I was struggling with depression and having panic attacks so bad I would collapse. I could barely function. Numb and quiet, nails in my stomach. I was incapable of articulating the depth of pain I was in, especially because my dreams were coming true. Or at least that's what I was being told. Juno had premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival to a fervent response. I didn't have a personal publicist at the time. I decided I could go at it alone after a previous experience where an innocent teenage question, do you ever watch Xena, was met with no, because I'm not a lesbian. That is bad PR. (laughs) What's your favorite color? What do you think, I'm gay? (laughs) (laughs) Not pink. (laughs) I mean, there were headlines constantly. He also tells a story about wanting to wear kind of like a cooler outfit to the premiere of Juno wearing like a Western shirt and flax and being told by Fox Searchlight that absolutely he had to wear a dress. And then he got a call from Jason Reitman, the director, and he was like, yeah, you have to wear a dress. It's better for everybody. So it really just goes to show like how strong these systems were into bullying you into being in the closet. And unfortunately, I am curious about how much they've changed. I know for like Marvel movies, a lot of the lead superheroes are instructed to stay publicly straight. Yeah. I mean, I think we're seeing a lot more diversity in Hollywood, but I think that that is because there is a much more diverse slate of projects. But when it comes to mainstream big money shit, I wonder what's changed. I still honestly don't feel like the core of the industry has changed. I do think it's just everything around it has spread out a bit. And he talks about how fucked up it is that Hollywood is seen as a leader of progressive values, but in fact is always answering what it seems like society has done and that they're so quick to win an Oscar for sharing the story of a gay person, but they forbid a gay person from being themselves. Yes. That they're happy to like get all the credit for being supportive, but when it comes like to the bottom line, they want people to be like straight hot sex bombs. So he's having these horrible panic attacks because he's been told by the industry, you can't be gay. And also his girlfriend, Paula, at the time was not out to her family. So when photos of Elliot are being popped up on magazines and in Canada, where he's from, he's like on the front page all the time with Paula. It has like larger repercussions than just himself. Yeah. And then even further, there was the anxiety that was causing him actual panic attacks of keeping his sexuality a secret. And then the anxiety of, well, how big of a secret does it need to be? Like, who in my immediate circle can I trust? Because some of the photos of Paula were taken at pretty private events. So someone he knew must have taken them and sent them. And that is something we read about a lot in these celebrity memoirs, just realizing your inner circle is not your inner circle at all. And I do think that there is probably like very few things in the world that are less grounding than realizing the few people you've decided to trust 
you were wrong about? So then he gets into the question that people ask, when did you know? I knew when I was four years old. I went to the YMCA preschool in downtown Halifax. Primarily, I understood that I wasn't a girl. Not in a conscience sense, but in a pure sense, uncontaminated. That sensation is one of my earliest and clearest memories. So he talks a lot about wanting the boy toy in Happy Meals, feeling very affirmed when people would confuse him for being a little boy. He had a little bowl cut and people would always call him a boy. And he really reveled in those experiences of people being confused. When he was six, he asked his mom, like, can I be a boy? He also, because he felt so alienated from his own gender, he did not understand little girls. He knew he wasn't accepted by the boys. He says he would often do what he called private play for hours. I'd build forts on my bunk bed, vanishing into intricate and impassioned narratives, danger lurking. I'd hang off the top bunk as if dangling from a cliff, facing death, using all my might to pull myself up to safety. My imagination was a lifeline. It was where I felt the most unrestrained, unselfconscious, real. Not a visualization, far more natural. Not a wishing, but an understanding. When I was present with myself, I knew without exception. I saw with startling clarity then. I missed that. And then he says this really led to his love of acting and what made him such a good actor because his whole life in order to kind of save himself, the only time he could be his true self were in these situations he'd invent and live in. His relationship with his mom has healed and significantly improved. In the beginning, his mom was very not accepting of his desire to lean towards boy activities and boy things. His mom wanted a little daughter. And it does seem like for a while, his mom was not quite accepting of him coming out, of his, you know, requests to wear boy clothes and things like that. And then I think it seems like in his early 20s, his mom was like, okay, I'll be on board. And he talks about the hate crimes he experienced growing up because he did look like a boy. So even though he often experimented with other teenage boys, which at the time would have been considered like a straight sexual experience, if he was out holding hands with a boy, people assumed he was a little boy and they would get called names. And it just felt like his whole childhood, he was always being attacked by people and then going home and saying to his mom, like, well, I want to be a boy and her being like, well, you you can't. So don't. (laughs) Yeah. Why don't you grow your hair out? Why don't you wear a skirt? Why don't you try to be like everybody else? His parents got divorced when he was very young, when he was two. And all of his memories are of going back and forth between his mom and his dad's house. He lived mostly with his mom until I think he was 10 or 11. And that's when his dad got remarried and he began splitting the month, the first 16 days at his dad and stepmom's house and the second half of the month at his mom's house. Something I feel really sad for him about is like this thing that keeps popping up in this book, which is him, I think, almost in a rare turn of events being overly sympathetic to the plight of his mother. And I understand that being a single mother is like so hard to do. But the things that Elliot apologizes for in his youth are like, what was it like to spend your whole day in rooms stuffed with 30 elementary school students and then have to come home, make dinner and judge your kid's fake diving competition? She'd have been on her feet all day and now she was crouched on the cold tile floor. I'm sure desperate for a comfy seat, warm food and a cold beer, none of which were going to magically appear before her. These are important moments to remember. They aren't small. And in moments like these, he's talking about when he was young, taking a bath and his mom playing next to him in the bathtub, like because he loved to have diving competitions with all of his action figures. And he's so apologetic about insisting his mom be a part of these moments with him. And I'm like, listen, I think it's so hard to be a single mom. I don't think you need to apologize for existing as a seven-year-old. I think it sounds like you're a pretty easy kid. As you said, you love to do private play, which is when you'd go be by yourself in your room. If your mom did not want to spend these moments playing with you in the bath, like it truly is on her. That is what being a parent is. Listen, having a full-time job, having a kid is a lot of work, but it's not the kid's fault that it's a lot of work. It's not like you were screaming at her and being like, why can't I have fancier clothes? Why can't I have better things? Quiet moments of playing with your mom in the bathtub. You don't have to apologize for those. I think it's like why people become parents. (laughs) Yeah. 
I don't know. There's just something so sad to me about being like, God, can you believe I was so insensitive? I'd come home after a day of school, after my mom had been working all day, and I would just be blabbing, telling her about everything I did. No, you're allowed to do that. You were eight. I think that your mom works all day so that she can create a life where then you guys can come home and spend time together and you can blab and she can listen. And that's, I think, why people do it. I don't know. I'm not a parent, but like... It just it makes me so sad that he's like so desperate to be apologetic for his own existence. Yeah, it is really sad. Hello, honey. Today's episode is sponsored by PayPal Honey, the easy way to save when shopping on your iPhone or computer. You guys know I am a supreme online shopper. I can't help it. I love to browse. I love to click around. I love to check what colors something comes in just in the easiest way possible. And that is at my computer. So imagine you're shopping on one of your favorite sites. And when you check out, the Honey button just appears. And all you have to do is click apply coupons. You wait a few seconds. Honey searches for coupons all across the entire internet. And if Honey finds a working coupon, the price just drops right before your eyes. Honey has truly been the make or break between making an online purchase or not making an online purchase for me. Sometimes I'll see something I kind of like, I'll get all the way to checkout, I'll press the Honey button, and then there is just an incredible coupon waiting for me that I didn't even know existed. And I think, well, it would be a shame not to shop right now. I just got a new pair of running shoes that I desperately needed. I had worn my old ones to dust. And guess what? Magically 15% off thanks to Honey. Honey does not just work on a desktop, it works on your iPhone too. Just activate it on Safari on your phone and save on the go. Getting Honey seriously takes a few seconds and by getting it, you're doing yourself a solid and supporting the show. Get PayPal Honey for free at joinhoney.com worm. That's joinhoney.com worm. So as we said, when he was young, people often thought he was a little boy. And then as he started to go through puberty, he like clung and clung to that image, which of course gets harder. You know, as you go through puberty, you start becoming a tomboy. And he says, I didn't grow out of this phase when I was supposed to. And my mom's distaste for what I wore and who my befriended grew. Masculine clothes and boys as friends should have been over that whole tomboy thing, a label that never quite felt right to me. But it's what everyone called me. So eventually it's what I called myself, a hazy memory. I should be turning into a young lady, my mother's idea of one at least. So then he gets into life at his dad's house, which is not great. His stepmom was a cunt. So his dad remarries this woman, Linda, who has two kids, Scott and Ashley. Maybe you've heard of them. That's what Ashley and her brother's names are. So uh, trigger warning, we're about to hear some really bad stories of Ashley bullying the shit out of Elliot Page. Can you fucking believe it? I don't think Ashley really bullied Elliot. I think Scott was quite a roughhouser and Ashley was cool and hung out in her room and said, don't talk to me. It's not her fault that Ashley is just like a hot, cool teenage girl who's very popular. If I could help it. I would. I will say neither of the kids were the problem as much as their mother, Linda, who was in fact a bully to a child. Even Elliot is like, yeah, Scott was quite rough with me, but also it was a very siblingy relationship. Yeah, I mean, Ashley, did you ever beat the shit out of your Scott? Oh, yeah, probably yesterday. <laughs> and Elliot loved it because he was being treated like a kid brother. And he actually really adored having this like, you know, older brother and role model looked up to. There were a couple points where Scott played a little too rough. And I do think that that is normal when you're little kids and you're fighting and you forget how big one of them is. As a kid, it was complicated looking up to him as much as I did while also experiencing another side which felt harsh and remorseless. But none of this was Scott's fault. He was a kid too. Kids can be mean. Kids can be rough. It was his mother's encouragement that stung. You're such a brat. Shut up, you brat. Linda shouted at me from the hall. She looked satisfied as if having unearthed another perfectly discreet way to induce pain shrouded in the guise of sibling tension. 
I guess I do feel like having kids beating each other up is one thing to have a parent come in and say, this is the kid who's right. That's the salt in the wound. Linda would just bully Elliot. She would laugh at him when the kids were teasing him. She would join in and tease him with them. Later, it comes out that she called him Skidmark. If ever she walked into Elliot's room and he was doing something kind of odd, playing by himself, she would make the kids come and be like, look what Elliot's doing. He's so weird. I mean, there's stories about Elliot getting food poisoning and waking up in the middle of the night at 11 and puking and Linda waking up and being like, shut up. Yeah. Like, Linda was horrible. Linda Snicker came out when Scott and she would tease me, sometimes evolving into a full cackle. It seemed she'd dig to find anything to pick at, whatever helped her feel better. He says that when it was just Elliot and his dad, the dad did love him and made a big thing about being like, you're my number one in the world. If it was between you and Linda, I'd always pick you. But around Linda, that love evaporated, a transformation in the tone, the body, the face, a coldness as if they conspired and teamed up, a frigid demeanor that made my eyes fall to the floor. She could be mean to me around the others, but was worse to me when we were alone. I've kept these stories close. It's hard to even share fragments of them here. My father did nothing. No protection. Fuck Linda. Fuck Linda. Then also fuck the dad, because I think Elliot struggled with, well, is it my fault for never speaking up? Is it my fault for never asking my dad for help? But then the dad would say things like, well, 90% of our fights are about you. As if that was supposed to make Elliot feel better, like in the privacy of their room, he's like, yeah, you're really mean to my son. Stop it. Even though clearly Linda did not stop it. And clearly, clearly it did nothing. Later in the book, you hear about a lot of incidences where Elliot will be afraid to talk about very legitimate problems for fear of causing a stir, getting made fun of, having a problem with Linda. At one point, he has an incident where he hurts himself rollerblading. And he is afraid to talk to Linda about it because she's the only one home. And he is bleeding very heavily and eventually has to go downstairs and be like, I do think I need to be taken to the clinic. And Linda was like, yeah, maybe. And he comes down and shows her the amount of blood in his clothes. And Linda's like, oh, fine, we have to go to the fucking clinic. Like, it's so difficult to like constantly be having to mitigate your own pain and worry and stress because you don't want to cause a problem with the evil bitch running your house. So then we switch Jump Scare, and it is now 2002. Elliot is the star of a movie that is a huge hit at the Toronto Film Festival, TIFF. It's the first time in his life that he's sitting down at an Italian restaurant, and he just can hear this voice saying, nope, that can't go inside of you. So now we back up into how Elliot got into acting. He started doing plays when he was in school. And then one day, someone who was casting for like Canada's movie of the week came to their school and was just watching kids in acting class. Canada's movie of the week. And I say this with all due respect to my Canadian relatives who I love. God bless Canada. Every time we read about someone from Canada, I'm like, what are you guys talking about up there? What do you mean the Canadian movie of the week? (laughs) And then so Elliot gets asked to audition for the Canadian movie of the week. And then the Canadian movie of the week, Pit Pony, gets picked up as a TV show and thus begins a career. And this I'm like, okay, I do think being a stage parent is an evil thing. And I do think people can stop their kids from becoming a part of showbiz. But at a certain point when there's like a guy who comes to your school and says, do you want to be in this TV movie? Like, how could you know what that will grow into? Yeah. And I got Elliot does have this career that feels like it was just meant for him. He says he's like, I knew from a young age, it just was going to work out. And that was like a secret I kept with myself. It's crazy that you're just at your school play. And he was like, I wasn't even good at the first one. The first one, I got so nervous. I only got one line. And then I did a really good job in the second one. And then somebody just came and plucked me out of obscurity. And then he just keeps getting the lead roles in like everything. I mean, why was Juno a hit? That is just a little indie baby. Anyway, I do think it's important to notice that this discussion of the start of his career and how he got his start is couched within the larger narrative of more important than here's how my career started. Here's the story of my first stalker. 
And he tells the story of the first time he sat down and could hear that voice that said, like, do not eat that. And it was hours after he had gone to the police station to get a restraining order against his stalker. And I think, you know, there have been so many moments of anxiety and like predators out to get him. And this is one of the first ones. It is interesting to me that it's like, it's not like, here's how I got into acting. It's like, here's how I got my first stalker. Like the fear of the stalking is larger than the success of the acting. Yes. So basically, one thing turns to another. He keeps just like getting picked up and hired. And in one of these things, a man reaches out to him online. He's like a 14-year-old at this point. The man is in his 30s. And the man and him email back and forth for like six or seven years. Because this is when he is just a young kid who's not connecting with the people of his own gender. He's not connecting with people his own age at all. Now he's getting into acting, which is further separating him from his peers. And now there's this person online who makes him feel seen. So he responds to a lot of messages before things start to get fucking weird. He stops responding and the messages really ramp up in scary intensity. And that's when he has to get a restraining order. And eventually this person comes and confronts him in real life and he runs away. And he's actually able to make a plea deal with the man because it turns out his stalker was an undiagnosed schizophrenic. And instead of having him sent to jail, he's able to make a deal with the stalker's father, get him the treatment he needs, have him move in with his dad. And he's like, I haven't heard from him since. I hope he never did it again. But I don't know. I, I find that very admirable because you could live in fear. You know what I mean? Like there is something if the man is in prison, he can't come get you. But to say like, no, this is somebody who needs help and I'm going to allow him to get the help he needs, even though I might have a little bit less safety. Yeah. And another moment that came out of this is a sort of break in the trust of Elliot's dad. So at this point, Elliot is living in Toronto with, I think, friends. So what had happened was he had been getting so many gigs that he met a friend on a TV show who told him about this school in Toronto where basically it's like a children's professional school. It's a boarding school in Toronto where they will set your schedule around filming so that if you get cast for something for six weeks, they're fine with you leaving and coming back. But he also gets to be on his own, basically, because he's kind of living as an adult in Toronto at this boarding school. So that is when the stalking comes to a head. And when his dad finds out about it, his dad calls Elliot and says, I'm going to come to Toronto and kick your ass, which I wish we got more of this conversation. And I guess the conversation did just go in that direction because Elliot feels like a real shift in their dynamic in that moment of like, why was there no compassion for me? Why was it just anger and violence? And I do feel like my parents, I think if I do something stupid that puts myself in danger, I do believe they would scream at me before they calmed down and said like, okay, how can we help you? And it's not easy to forgive my father. I'm going to come to Toronto and kick your ass. When his kid needed safety, when his kid needed love, when his kid needed protection, he threatened violence. Outraged because I had the audacity to communicate with an older man on the internet when I was a minor. If I didn't deserve care in that moment, if I didn't deserve safety and love, when would I ever? That sentence has lived in my body much longer than the man's threats, his obsession, his finger is fondling my arms. So then we get further into a lot of the abuse Elliot has suffered. Being a kid who was alone on these sets, he talks about how his parents were not stage parents. And in fact, he insisted his parents not be on set with him because he didn't like acting in front of his parents. I think set became a place he could be himself and safe. But... In being a minor who was alone and unprotected in a lot of situations on the second season of Pit Pony, his onset guardians were just other people from the set. Like there really was no one looking out for him. And he was groomed and abused by a lot of people in a lot of these projects and then turned 18. Turning 18 further frayed my boundaries and unspoken permission slip I didn't consent to. 
And again, experiences ranging from inappropriate behavior to downright assault from both men and women for quite a long time. As puberty transmuted me into a character I had no interest in playing, my isolation, insecurity, and unknowing grew. I desperately needed to anchor myself in new cities with no friends, alone in hotel rooms. It was not hard for someone to pray. I'm sure they sensed that. Like the man I met online, a lonely kid is a perfect target. There was a director. There was a PA. I mean, it was just like everywhere. There was always someone on the crew who noticed. It is really sad. I mean, the amount of just torture. Then we get to this chapter called Famous Asshole at Party about a famous asshole at a party. After Elliot came out as a lesbian in 2014, he was at a party and a famous person started following him around the party saying, being gay doesn't exist. You aren't gay. You're just afraid of men. I'm going to fuck you so you realize you're not gay. Some really explicit like sexual harassment things about what he was going to do to him. In front of the whole party. This wasn't like a quiet whispering in the ear. I don't know why I didn't demand he leave, ask for people to do more than yo leave him alone. Some of my closest friends were there witnessing it. Power works in funny ways. He was and still is one of the most famous actors in the world. We have been really racking our brains to try and figure out who it is. So we asked Jamois, we DM'd her, and she was like, well, I just talked about it on my podcast. Like, you can hear. And on the podcast, she says, someone who's played a superhero. was a superhero who was famous, and this must have been 2014, and they think he was especially triggered because his ex had recently come out. So we have, like, racked our brains for who this could be. It's not Chris Pratt, apparently. We guess Zac Efron, even though he's not a superhero, but we're like, but he, he could have been. <laughs> if you told me he was in a superhero movie, I'd be like, yeah, of course, he's been around forever. And then not Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, they said no to Ryan Reynolds, which is, was a guess for me. If you guys have any ideas of who it was. Yeah, some other contenders in my brain, even though it doesn't match up with the ex who recently came out. This is the thing is I'm like, is the person who DMs and had inside scoop aware of private relationships that we don't know about? Because these two don't line up, but I could see Christian Bale or maybe Robert Downey Jr., so, you know, if you guys have any ideas, let us know. I'm very curious about who Famous Asshole at Party is. But Elliot just keeps listing other situations that happened in the wake of him coming out in 2014, which for him was like a monumental, huge moment where I think he was much happier after. But even in Hollywood that like purports to be so liberal and progressive, he was told not to take certain roles that would make him seem too gay. Like you don't want to double down on it. When he was filming Gaycation with Vice, his own agent was like, oh, we get it. You're gay. Coming out in 2014 was more a necessity than a decision. But yes, it was one of the most crucial things I've ever done for myself. No matter what came after, a different kind of exposure, vulnerability, it was all worth it. All a step. I'd rather feel the pain while living than hiding. My shoulders opened. My heart was bare. I could be in the world in ways that felt impossible before. Holding hands. But deep down, an emptiness lurked. That undertone. Its whisper still ripened in my ear. He then tells another story about like in 2022, after I think he had come out as trans, being harassed and followed by a man on the streets in West Hollywood. And something that I think his book did a really like eye-opening job of for like even me was just all these places that you kind of assume are safe to be gay in, like West Hollywood. I mean, the sidewalks in West Hollywood, the crosswalks are rainbow painted. That you're still never 100% safe. The amount of moments that Elliot describes in his life from the 80s in Canada to today in Meatpacking District, things have happened to him everywhere. It was very eye-opening for me, like how all these places that you assume are safe yeah. are not. 
So let me get into a little bit further into his acting career and where it really jumped off. One of his first big roles and one of his first roles in America was in An American Crime with Catherine Keener, who to this day remains one of his best palios. Can I say, okay, I don't want to get into it really, but basically the importance of this story is that he played this character, Sylvia, who's famously like the most abused woman in Indiana. And the character really fucked with Elliot's head. And Elliot obviously already struggles with an eating disorder. And at the end of this movie, he was like down to 84 pounds. And he went home for almost a year to try to recover because it was clear he was going to die. And I think to be in such a vulnerable place personally with his own sexuality and his own existence and the panic attacks and then to have to play this character. Yeah, so it continued to further push down his own ability to acknowledge his own pain. I'd shower at night, washing off the burns, the bruises, a reminder that I had nothing to complain about. How dare I acknowledge my silly pain is anywhere near hers. Can I say, though, why was this movie made? Yeah. This is the kind of movie that I'm like, why do we need actually the story about the most abused woman of all time? It is just fucking trauma porn where we just get to watch a woman get her fucking ass kicked for two hours. I don't understand why movies like that have to exist. I mean, I completely agree. I think a lot of these types of stories just truly exist because people like watching it and it's fucking disgusting. I don't know. Even reading Elliot describe the movie, I was like, why did this movie have to get made? It fucked with you so bad. What was the larger story here? Can I tell you one of my biggest pet peeves right now is when people couch their interest in fucked up stories like this as like educating themselves on safety. Yeah, they're like, I have to know about the most abused woman of all time because I like to go running and that could happen to me. And it's like, yeah, it won't. And if it does, it's not because you like weren't read up enough on how not to get locked in a basement and murdered. So after this movie, he's really in a bad place. I mean, in Hollywood, he had been dating a man who just kept telling him you're not gay, even though he kept being like, I think I'm gay. So he goes home. His mom sees his weight, freaks out, and he agrees to try and get some help. And he goes to therapy. And it's not so helpful but then what actually kind of comes in and saves his life is he reads the script. And for the first time in his life, he goes, oh, this is the role that I was meant to play. The role of pregnant teenager. Juno ever heard of it? So because of the auditioning process for this movie, it keeps getting delayed a little bit because it's an indie that's still kind of searching for its financing. There is enough time for him to get to a healthy enough place to be able to go back and film another project. And that really is what pushes him to just start eating again and try and gain more weight is that he wants to be healthy enough to do this role. A fresh manicure is truly the number one thing that makes me feel put together. My hair can be undone. My outfit can be a mess. But if my nails look cute, there's something about it that just makes it an outfit. I don't always have time to go sit at the salon for 100 years. Sometimes it can be a real help to be able to paint my nails while I'm doing something at home. And then you just let it dry while I take Bug on a walk or something. It's so wonderful to be able to do a full manicure in my house, professional salon quality, thanks to the Olive and June manicure system. The Olive and June Manny system has everything you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. You can customize it with your choice of six polishes. And the polish is so, so incredible. It doesn't chip. It lasts seven days or more. And when you break it down, it comes out to about $2 a manicure. I have been playing around with my Olive and June Manny system for a few months now, doing my nails every 10 days or so because that polish really lasts. I love the quick dry polishes because I honestly don't have the patience to wait for my nails to fully dry, but I've also been getting really fancy with the colors and doubling up, putting an iridescent on top of a more solid shade. It has been a real game changer for me. I'm pretty sure everyone in town is whispering saying, who does Ashley's nails? They look so good. But the truth is, it's me with help from Olive and June. 
The colors are also so beautifully pigmented. There is nothing I hate more than having to apply a billion coats because a color just doesn't look solid enough. And then it takes a million years to dry. Olive and June, you get full coverage in about two coats. It looks so incredible. Visit oliveandjune.com slash worm for 20% off your first Manny system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash W-O-R-M for 20% off your first Manny system. So he goes and he shoots and him and Michael Sayer get along and I think it's a great little experience. His mom comes with actually and stays in the hotel. He meets a girl there. They're hooking up. Olivia Thurlby, the best friend from Juno. Oh, they had a little bit of a onset romance. Who told you? In the book, it says Olivia Thurlby would come to my room. Who said that? (laughs) Cite your source. Being intimate with Olivia helped my shame dissipate. I didn't see a glint of it in her eyes and I wanted that. I was taken aback the moment I saw Olivia Thurlby. (laughs) (laughs) I just can't recall who that would be in the show. Remember there was a best friend who was like... I remember there was a hamburger phone. Who did he call on the hamburger phone? Anybody's guess. (laughs) Anyway... And then the chapter ends. I wonder what will become of that little indie. Obviously, we know it became a runaway success. So then we get back into his relationship with his father. I never actually talked to my father about how Linda treated me until I was an adult, and I never not once stood up to her. I suppose I felt I deserved it, and why the hell wouldn't I? My father knew, and he did nothing about it. So this is when he and his dad talk about the fights that Linda would have about him. And then it just further amplifies the verbal abuse that Linda laid on thick. We were just kidding around, he said, whispering, rubbing my back. It's just a joke. No sorry, never a sorry, no stop, never an are you okay. I know, I said, masking my sniffles, making the words sound like a smile. 90% of our fights were about you, my father told me many years later, claiming that he did protect me and I just wasn't privy to it. My guess is Linda was not the only one who resented me. I felt that my father did too. It seems like he was annoyed that he had made a baby in the 11th hour with someone he didn't desire to be with, a puny human, relentlessly keeping the cord strong and taut. Elliot talks about how Linda resented that his father had a relationship before Linda, but Linda walked into the relationship with two kids. It's different when it's not you. (laughs) That's so true. I don't know if you've heard of a double standard, but sometimes it's fine for you to do things that other people can't do. So because of Juno, Elliot endures his first award season or his first major award season where he's really expected to show up and show out and do all the interviews because Juno was a major contender for these awards. And this really exacerbates his dysphoria and sort of pushes him to a place where he begins turning down roles because of the attire that would be required of certain jobs. And I feel like it's not just the job itself, but it's the press after. He talks about doing the press for X-Men 3 and Con and the way the publicist would insist you wear long dresses. I have to say, this book really rang to me how rich Elliot Page must be. You forget that he's in mega, mega hits. Inception, X-Men. I mean, there have been some big, big projects. I mean, Juno itself, I think, made a shit ton of money. Yeah, I know. But I wonder what the back end deal was because I'm sure he didn't get paid well in the original contract for that movie. Anyway, so this leads Elliot to taking the role in Whip It, the roller derby movie that he made with Drew Barrymore. And it did lead to really beautiful friendships. Of course, being friends with Drew Barrymore is a beautiful friendship. There is no other way that Drew knows how to do friendship. And Aaliyah Shawkat. At this time... He is dating Paula. Paula is not out to her family. And so they come up with this situation where in order to pass as not a couple, but hang out all the time, Paula becomes his quote unquote assistant, and but actually is his assistant. 
And this seems really rife for a problematic relationship. This is a situation that you only a 23-year-old would be like, this will fix our long-distance problem. What if you gave up everything and worked for me? I guess I do see, because they lived together in Canada, and then Elliot had to go down to Los Angeles and was commuting back and forth between the shooting location for Whippet and Los Angeles and just would not have been able to get up to Canada for a visit. So they were like, what if Paula lives in L.A. as Elliot's assistant? And then when Elliot is traveling back and forth, he's able to see Paula a lot more. But Paula also comes to the set of Whippet. And Elliot is not out on set with people like Drew Barrymore, Aaliyah Shawkat on a movie about roller derbying, which is a pretty gay theme, I'd say. But I also think that there is a lot of variables. It's one thing to like come out at like a small cast gathering. It's another thing in front of a full cast and crew. And this is where he talks about Hollywood, like leveraging queerness and how like the dichotomy of working on this film that had queer roots, but like wasn't about that at all. Being closeted while learning roller derby has a special type of irony to it, given how intertwined queerness is with the sport. Paula resented me for being so closeted here. And during our fights, I couldn't help but get defensive and bring up that she wasn't out to her family. It didn't seem fair, me having to deal with the bulk of the blame. And yes, my mom knew, but she was disappointed in that sorrow sprang from the same holy source. And this is where Elliot tells Paula, I will never be out. The whippet shoot ends and Elliot is just not feeling that he wants to go back to Paula, which, you know, is the sign that you should end a relationship. Instead, he makes a plan to go spend a month at this wilderness retreat outside of Eugene, Oregon, where he's going to learn how to create a self-sustaining environment where you like learn about the nitrogen in your pee and stuff. I think it's interesting that he's interested in that. I am not. So originally, Paula is supposed to go on the retreat too. They end up breaking up. But on this retreat where Elliot goes alone, he has this really beautiful experience of feeling very seen of his sexuality and his fame and all of these things that sort of weigh him down, not being a defining characteristic at all. He's just surrounded by people who want to talk about dirt and nitrogen and pee. Yeah, let's compost, baby. Who cares who you love? We all love composting. (laughs) (laughs) If you are a snacker like me, you are about to go absolutely nuts for nuts.com. I need my after breakfast snack around 11 a.m. and I need an after lunch snack. I would say 3 p.m. approximately. If I am not snacking during the day, I will tell you what, I become an incredibly mean person. And nuts.com has stepped in to save just about everyone in my life from the wrath. Nuts.com is your one-stop shop for freshly roasted nuts, dried fruits, sweets, pantry staples like specialty flowers, and more. Their wide selection means there is something for everyone. Nuts.com offers plenty of gluten-free options, organic choices, and other diet-friendly products. Whether you're looking for something sweet, savory, or you need to stock up on everyday cooking essentials, you are bound to find something to try. So we have a nuts.com stash in the office. And I get to the office early because I am so excited to get some extra snacks. We had dried mangoes, which I plowed through. They are gone. We also went crazy for the chocolate covered gummy bears. Having some fresh nuts to snack on. It is such a treat when we get in to record an episode. You can shop a la carte anytime or opt into hassle-free auto deliveries so you never run out of your favorite snacks. Right now, Nuts.com is offering new customers a free gift with purchase and free shipping on orders $29 or more at Nuts.com slash worm. Go check out all of the delicious options at Nuts.com slash worm. You'll receive a free gift and free shipping when you spend $29 or more. That's Nuts.com slash worm. 
So again, we're back in the relationship with his mom and he has this realization that his sexuality is not about sexuality to her. It's about ego. And so once he's able to get through to her about that, his mom's very accepting. I don't know, very accepting. I think his mom slowly comes to accept. He goes through the different times that he confronted his mom once when he was a teenager. And he said, Mom, I think I may be gay. That doesn't exist, she yelled before I'd completed the word. Later, he says, I'm in love with a woman when he's 22. At 24, I tried again. I'm gay, Mom. You know that, right? I'm gay and I'm not going to end up with a man. I finally said when a woman had moved in with me. It was not immediate acceptance, but at this point, he says, she's become my ally. She loves her son endlessly, and I'm lucky to have that. I mean, 24 was like 10 years ago. Yeah. So I think it's been a long road. I mean, and even before that, like teenage years. So I think it was, you know, a while. After Paula, his next big relationship was with someone identified in this book as Ryan. We never get any true identifiers, but it was another famous person that he dated secretly. I didn't want to come out, but I wanted to be with her. We loved each other, cared deeply, and had meaningful time together. This person was actually more in the closet than he was, to the point where if they were in a hotel together, like one of them would have to literally hide in the closet. If they were at a party together, they could not speak. He says even his closest friends did not know that they were dating. And so when he went through the breakup of this, which was heart-wrenching for him, nobody even understood what he was going through. It sounds incredibly isolating. To this day, the person does not seem to be out. The next time Elliot sees Ryan, they, I mean, they travel in the same circles. They're both famous people who go to famous house parties in Hollywood. And they would just always run into each other. And shortly after their breakup, which was very traumatic for Elliot, she starts showing up at parties with a new boyfriend. I went from a relationship where attending something like a games night was inconceivable to watching her be touched by him, enjoying it, existing in the way that she never could with me. I guess I should be happy for her. I tried to convince myself I wanted to be, to be evolved, but it was too much. I mean, that sucks. He then gets into his current relationship with his dad. He says, as an adult, whenever I was heading home, I would prep myself. I spent so much of my professional life performing that I had come to the realization that I could not also perform in my personal life. I should not have to perform. I did not have to make things okay for Linda and my dad. And he's always prepping himself to like stand up for himself and say, you can't talk to me like that. Or like, you owe me an apology. And then one day, when it seems like he's in his late 20s, his dad is going to come down and visit him in Los Angeles. And his dad calls and says, you know, I want to talk to you about something when I get down there. And he's like, okay, this is it. He's going to apologize for all the shit he put me through. And they're in the Whole Foods parking lot. And his dad says, what I want to talk to you about, well, I've been thinking a lot about it. I feel I've carried guilt for so long and I have finally come to a place where I can let go of it. It wasn't exactly what I expected, but I still clung to hope that this was the reckoning that could help us move forward. I've always felt so guilty for leaving your mother when you were little. But if all that hadn't happened, I never would have been with Linda. I never would have had this life with her. I never would have had the love and happiness I have. I love her so much. I mean, obviously, Elliot like doesn't know what to say. He doesn't speak for the rest of the day. He leaves three hours early for therapy. And on the way to therapy, he gets into a fender bender where he's like on the brink of ending it all, basically, because he feels so bad that he hit somebody with his car. And his therapist is like, people get into fender benders. It's not a big deal. You blur the boundaries enough and you get lost in between. It was that moment I felt I would never hear what I yearned for, an understanding or at least an explanation, something. It would take me years to finally speak. Then he gets into his discovery of acting and how he just knew at a very early age that it was just going to work. His parents tried to get him to be very realistic. My parents did not doubt me in a mean way, but a realistic one, not wanting me to get ahead of myself or too excited. It would be a fun experience now, but I needed to keep my grades up and play soccer. Acting wouldn't be a career, but I knew. He talks about how much he loved acting. I could just disappear, leave my body for a moment, paradoxically allowing me to connect with my body more. This would happen when I went away to film. The clothes and hair were not always fun, but the joy I got to feel while acting, the permission to leave, I could breathe. 
I was addicted to the fresh start I got on every film set. Enthralled by possibility, I poured my whole self into that world. He just tells a few more stories about moments in his life, like trying to go to Old Navy and dressing up as a girl to make his mom happy when he went to a family reunion. And still, his cousins thought he was weird anyway. And it was like this realization that it's not just the clothes, there's something in me. And then he remembers a girl that he was friends with in high school, and he always thought there might be something there. And every time the girl brushed his thigh, he would be like, should I touch her back? And he never knew what to do. And one day it seemed like they were about to kiss and someone opened the door and walked in on them. And he found out years and years later that she was in fact gay. And he just reminisces on being like, I can't believe we were robbed of what could have been just like young high school love that so many people get to experience. I think it's interesting the movies that are focused on this book. Obviously, Juno is a major moment, but there are a lot of major projects that just kind of get brushed through. But Flatliners was a pretty bad movie that Elliot Page made that was a remake of a cult classic. I mean, it was a disaster. I think that these stories of how Hollywood just does not exist without these A-list actors, but like will cut every corner possible to just use and abuse them is really scary. Like there are so many safety corners that get cut. There was a shooting on Rust. There was that PA who died on the train tracks a few years ago because they like cut corners for safety and permits. There are just like all these situations where people truly get hurt and reading these stories where everyone just got lucky is really sad. It's a story about how they did a stunt where they had a stunt driver basically crash their car. And not only were they not strapped in at all, Elliot was sitting on the lap of another co-star. The director wouldn't even tell them what the stunt was going to be. He wanted them to authentically respond. And it was like, it could have been really bad. And Elliot says, me and that other actress get together all the time and talk about like, we were scared. We knew it was bad. Why didn't we speak up for ourselves? Like, what holds us back? Too many times, those who were supposed to protect me did nothing, or if anything, only furthered my silence. So then we get into some conversations Elliot had with some friends in his 20s about thinking he might be a boy. And every time he gets close to the conversation, every time therapy starts circling the conversation of gender, he'll quit going to therapy, he'll back out of it very quickly. There are just a lot of moments where he just was not ready for the thought process yet. And he says the dysphoria is getting worse and worse to the point where he can't accept certain roles. And he's like, I know it's crazy that I refuse to wear a skirt because cis men will be like, well, I'd wear a skirt and it's literally acting. But he's like, it's just become so fucking painful and I can't look in the mirror and see myself. And he's talking to a friend. And the friend says, do you think you're trans? Yes. Well, maybe I think so. Yeah. We exchanged a soft smile. I was so near, almost touching it, but I panicked. And it burned away like the joint I was smoking, becoming an old roach left of rotten and forgotten ashtray. It all felt too big. The thought of going through this publicly in a culture that is so rife with transphobia and people with enormous power and platforms actively attacking the community. Not long after my 30th birthday, I did a U-turn. I bailed. I stopped talking about it. I closed my eyes and hid it away somewhere I'd never find it. It would be four more years until I disclosed who I was. I met my ex-spouse, Emma, around the same time, and meeting Emma let me leave it behind, a foggy memory. Falling madly in love, the energy was indisputable. Just a hug would make my body shake. I threw myself in, and we got married quickly. If a part of you is always separate, if existing in your body feels unbearable, love is an irresistible escape. It wasn't until our relationship was falling apart two years later that my gender dysphoria is so extreme that I sought out someone in the city. I was ready to talk. So then he talks about what brought him to a point where he was able to speak out about being gay. One of the factors was this movie, God Loves Uganda, about the American colonialism in Uganda and how like Christian fundamentalists and missionaries have gone there and created this like foundation of homophobia and bigotry that's allowed laws like killing gay people to be able to pass. And he was like, you know, if there's activists in Uganda standing up to this, then I need to be able to come out. But also he was at a point, I think, where he couldn't take the panic anymore. Just the constant fear of being outed. 
living with partners and always being in secrecy. I think he just truly couldn't survive it anymore. So he gave a speech. And on the way back in the plane, he received a letter from a priest that was like, you just don't know yourself. Being gay isn't real. If you ever need help, you have us. Love your heavenly daddy. Ugh. Ugh. Coming out was not easy, which is shocking to think now, but I suppose we or I forget the degree of change and lack thereof that has happened over the past decade. So this is something that I think a lot of people really forget about. It's very like two steps forward, one steps back. But I do think the conversation and like the language and all of that has progressed really dramatically. Because when I think back to like when I was in high school and when I think about Hollywood 10 years ago, what it was like when someone would come out, like it was a really different conversation than it is now. And so he talks about after this experience, being able to go out on his first date and just like the thrill of being able to date somebody in public, all these things that he literally never thought he'd be able to do and how great it felt. And it was such a freeing moment. And it is interesting hearing him talk about the flirting in this chapter versus the flirting that would happen with early girlfriends. And of course, you know, the first girls that you're talking to, it is clumsier and sweeter and whatever. But the confidence in the conversations now that he's not afraid of the level of trust of will you tell someone about us? It is really nice to read. So right after he came out as gay, a girl he had met at a party that he had thought they were flirting emails him and says, wait, you're gay? Who emailed him this? Kate Mara. So he goes on to date Kate Mara while she is in a relationship with a man still. Do you know who that man is? Not really. It's Max something, Max Mozzarella. Yeah, Max, Max Margarita. <laughs> anyway, so Kate Mara is interested in exploring their flirtation. She says, you know, my boyfriend doesn't care. So they start dating. Elliot falls head over heels for Kate Mara. And a lot of headlines, I would say the majority of headlines about this book have been Elliot Page reveals secret affair with Kate Mara, who was in a relationship at the time. And I was like, oh my God, so this book is going to be salacious as fuck because I had not opened it yet. And I was very prepared to read Elliot throwing every fucking person under the bus. But the amount of care that he takes to not name the person who we call Ryan, to not name the Hollywood asshole, like all of these things that are very carefully shrouded. I'm like, obviously, Kate Mara wanted this story to be told. Also, it's pretty explicit sexually. Yeah. It kind of ends, you know, they have this relationship where she's still with her boyfriend living with him and dating Elliot kind of on the side. And of course, it breaks Elliot's heart. It wasn't even that on the side because I Googled photos of them together from that yeah, time. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of photos of them together. It seems like they were an out couple. They were like holding hands and bopping around. They made a movie about being in love after they had already broken up. Yeah. Like three months in, they're like, we got to make a movie about this thing. But it's really explicit sexually. She lifted me up and looked at my ass and blah, 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 blah. And so, yeah, Kate was into it. Yeah. If you look at Kate's Instagram and stuff now, there's a lot of trans support that specifically centers Elliot Page. Like, doesn't center Elliot Page. Like, you know what? A photo of Elliot Page that says, like, protect trans kids or something like that. So I'm like, obviously, they're still good friends. It has been nearly nine years since Kate and I met. Certain chemistry never faded, but Room for Realizations left us laughing at how little we had in common. In retrospect, we'd mostly been fucking. But what has never changed, what will never change, is the love between us. Loyal, generous, emotional, present. Kate is not just a wonderful friend. She is an honest friend. Cute. I guess it's nice a little love story. Yeah. She really is like, you know who I fucked though and was so hot. <laughs> What's on the other side of coming out of the closet? You might get to fuck Kate Mara. <laughs> Do it. May we all. <laughs> so then he tells this story back in time again. He's about 16 years old. He can't stand living with his dad and Linda anymore. And he tells his mom, like, I want to live with you full time. And with bated breath, he watches from his soccer field as his mom tells the dad 
He gets into the car with his dad who drives him like to the beach and then starts hysterically crying and saying, Do you want to live at your mom's? Why don't you want to live with us anymore? His head dropped. The crying turned into sobbing. You love your mother more than me. The weeping continued, shoulders rising and falling. He looked at me. His sad eyes hit like a rock. I could feel their weight. Do you not love me? I love you. I'm sorry. I still want to go back and forth. I'm sorry. I said with a pleading tone. So he has to go home to his mom and be like, never mind. I see now that moments like these between me, my mom, and my dad silently paved the way for my future relationship dynamics. I would throw the feelings aside, worried I would get in trouble for having them. I mean, that is really sad. I really feel like his dad is one of those types of men that is low-key the worst type of man where... That's a lot of them. Like a sleeper worse because they act emotionally open, but they're to their core only emotionally manipulative. And you're like, okay, well, clearly my dad loves me. He's crying so hard because he wants to be with me, but he is just manipulating you into a worse version of your life. So years later, his dad is starting to be like, how come you never come visit us? I feel so disconnected from you. I had no plan to have the conversation. It just came out. Linda was pretty horrible to me when I was growing up and it has affected me and I'm finding it hard to come home and be around you, I said. He wasted no time agreeing instantly. I was not yet capable of approaching my father about other things. Showing hints of relief, he was able to pin it all on her. Why did you not do something if you knew, I asked. I did. 90% of our fights were about you. He echoed the line from my childhood. So he has this hope like, okay, maybe me and my dad are about to bond. Instead, he gets a letter from Linda, an apology, which was less of an apology and more of an explanation outlining all of the reasons that caused her hostility. I was a kid. Reasons that ultimately had nothing to do with me. You should forgive Linda, my dad said to me 48 hours later. It would be good for you. It often seems like more people step forward to defend being unkind than they do to support trans people as we deal with an onslaught of cruelty and violence. And I do think that this is something that is so simple and so poignant. I just feel like everything online, it's always like, oh, so-and-so was joking. It's never, sorry, she shouldn't have said that. Specifically here, we're talking about the fact that I guess Jordan Peterson has come after Elliot Page specifically. And Elliot's own father and stepmother have continued to like his online presence, like like his posts. I have no clue what my father thinks of his son at this point, what he says, how he explains my absence. I do know that I am blamed. I'm the one who made the mess. That little skin mark. So at this point, Elliot hasn't talked to his father in about five years and does not see a reconciliation. But I wonder if they'll read this book and think anything. I doubt it. Me too. He does say the silver lining here is after he stopped speaking to his father, after the letter thing, he kind of sends his dad a letter saying, I just can't speak to you anymore for a while. And things have not gotten better from there. He's at the lowest point of his life. He's low weight. He goes and he lives with this woman, Julia, in Fort Greene in Brooklyn, who dated his friend's mom in high school. And she becomes kind of a mentor to him and becomes his chosen family and is like, in all the time since, she has always been there for me. And it's like a little message about chosen family. So now it is the pandemic. I'm sure you guys remember it. It's 2020 fall. Elliot has just gone through a divorce. We do not get a lot of explanation for the marriage at all. This marriage came and it went with Emma. But he's now single, living back in Fort Greene with Julia, and he's dressing much more masculine. He's cut his hair short, and he's wearing masks, and he's often getting confused for men on the street in a way that makes him incredibly happy. He's looking at his reflection in mirrors and feeling good. And the problem is, people will call him Sir, Mr., Monsieur, if you're in a French part of the neighborhood. I think it's Monsieur. (laughs) But as soon as he responds, they hear his voice, and they're like, oh, sorry, ma'am. And it's like... He can feel it. He can feel that he's so close to being who he wants to be. So he makes an appointment for a top surgery consultation and then just backs out and never goes to it. And then, you know, he loves the wilderness and he is a Canadian citizen. So he 
is allowed to leave the United States with the borders closed and decides to go spend some time up at a cabin that his family has. Just him and the dog live off the land. And it's there at this cabin that he truly is able to connect with himself and say, like, no, this is something that I am and that I have to do. So he gets the top surgery and his friend comes and takes care of him. And he's very adamant about how grateful and privileged he is to, one, be able to afford it, to, two, have the people who will support him, to have a place to rest and relax. To have the money to do it, to have the resources to get the appointment quickly. I guess there's a real run on these appointments and some people have to wait up to years. And he was able to get his pretty quickly. And as soon as the God, those like blood plugs, he sh- as soon as those come out, he's able to look at himself in the mirror. But he feels finally so happy in his body. You don't have to feel this way. I don't have to feel this way. From the moment I decided, I had not a single second thought, no whisper telling me to throw the shift into reverse. After his surgery, he buys all these button downs. Putting on each, I looked at my profile in the mirror, huge grin, running my hand from my neck to my abdomen. A mini fashion show, a montage sequence gone on way too long. My phone filled up with pictures of my smooth chest, the new angles, that smile. It healed well, as planned, my left side a few days behind the right. And when the vest was gone and the nipple bandages done, well, I had no words for that. In many ways, my narrative is still unfolding. I've been on testosterone for over a year now. Every Friday, I wake up excited yet content, a new sense of calm in my life. I inject myself with 40 milligrams of tea. I'm changing. I'm growing. It's all just beginning. Let me just exist with you happier than ever. And that is Page Boy. I think it was just a really honest and I would say this is like a read it book. Fertileness, I would give this a five. Yes. And would you want to hang out with the person? I would give this a three and three quarters. I honestly don't think we have anything in common. I like do not like self-sustaining environments. (laughs) I feel like he seems very shy, which I think like would make me over talk. I mean, I I don't think it would be a bad experience. You know what me and him both love? That song that everybody loves. That's uh, like park that car, drop that phone. We would both talk about how much we liked that song for about six minutes. And then we'd be like, yeah. I actually changed mine to 4.0 because he's obsessed with his dog, Mo. And I do feel like we could have like a two and a half hour conversation about our dog's personalities. (laughs) All right. We love you guys. See you next week. 